Well, talk about coming to an end of a journey. Isaiah, coming to an end. And uh, as was even said this morning, to me it's a, it's a bittersweet thing to get to come to an end of uh, a study of a book. It's uh, exciting because I always enjoy going to another book. I'm always looking forward to looking at another one, but it's always disappointing to leave one behind. And uh, I have felt... Uh, so uh, taught and radically changed by the things that Isaiah has prophesied uh, much more than I had originally anticipated and that's the way the Word of God ought to be and uh, I have truly enjoyed it and I appreciate uh, so much your all's enjoyment of the study following along in these things uh, being here for it throughout and coming to Wednesday night as well and going through the details and coming through these things uh, it has been a joy for me to teach it to you, and I do hope it has uh, stirred your faith and encouraged uh, you in your walk with God. Isaiah 66 is really a continuation of Isaiah 65. There's a way to do those two chapters together. It would be far more appropriate uh, to do that. That chapter 66 opens with, thus says the Lord. This is God's answer. Remember in chapter 65, Isaiah has said, Lord, we need you to break in and do something. Uh, The separation that has existed because of our sins has not caused the people to come back to you. Instead, They're hard-hearted and they're going further from you. And so, Lord, we need you to do something. We need you to intervene. We need you to act. And you see then God in chapter 65 describing, I'm going to radically change everything. I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Former things are done away with. It's going to be a completely new system, a complete new order. And now God is going to describe this new order in greater detail. He's going to give us more about what this looks like when his Christ comes, when the anointed arrives and the new covenant that he's going to bring. So this is how then chapter 66 opens with God continuing his declaration. Chapter 66 verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's start with that picture. He introduces now just really a picture of the immensity of God. When the new covenant comes, this is what his people are going to do is they're going to appreciate who God is. And they're not going to consider that God is confined in some kind of locality or some kind of building. Now, remember, that is particularly important, even though King Solomon at the dedication of the temple specifically said "Now it's not like God can be contained in anything that I've made. But we know that's where Israel went. They believed when we get to the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that because the physical temple stood, they were in right relationship with God because God was in that building. So as long as the temple was there, we're all good. We're all fine. Carry on what you're doing. And so Isaiah now is wrapping this up as God gives the declaration. Do you really think that there is a location or a building that can house the immensity of God. And then the language that he uses is just really amazing. If you try to conjure that in your mind to say, 
Heaven is the throne. Let's kind of visualize that. Just, you know, all of sky, heaven, space. That's where God sits. And His feet are on the earth. Kind of visualize that throne idea. Now here He is just taking up all of heavens and sky and space. And the earth is His automobile. It's immense. And that's what he's trying to get at. Do you understand the immensity of God? Do you understand how great and glorious and majestic He is? Heaven is His throne. Earth is His footstool. What are you going to build Him? What are you going to give Him? And that's what he says in verse 1. I've made all these things. What shall you give to me? What are you going to make that I need? You know, that even came about when David said, I'm going to build you a temple. And God said, I didn't ask for that. That's not necessary, not not needed, not critical. Because what are you going to build for God? And I think it's a great picture then that the temple is not the residence of God and then gives this imagery then of when people now come to God, it is not going to be some physical place. The temple is not going to be the location to which you will go, which is really the weight of how this text is used in the New Testament. If you remember when Stephen is preaching his sermon there before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, his ending of his sermon is on these lines right here in, in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. He ends with this quotation, and it is at that quotation that the Sanhedrin then are enraged and then take Stephen out and, and stone him. And this is the intention of what Stephen is getting at. It's the intention of what Isaiah was saying. Notice what he was said about Stephen earlier in Acts 7, verse 13. When he is arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, We're told there that he never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That's the charges against Stephen. And then Stephen gives this long history about how the people of Israel have always rebelled against God, always persecuted the prophets, and then ends thunderously on Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, which is, guess what? I'm right. He's not in this temple. He doesn't reside here. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And the picture is, it's the new heavens and the new earth. Christ has come. He's not in that temple. For he can be worshipped all over the earth. And they kill him for that. They said, that is blasphemy. We have heard enough. But that is the message that Isaiah is giving when he says this. This isn't just to step back and say, well, isn't that really great? We think about God. Yeah, he's, he's enormous and immense. But the picture was Isaiah saying it's the end of temple worship. It's the end of this physical way. It's the end of this old covenant system. It's the end of how they had understood things to be. Which fits what Isaiah has been saying. This is the new heavens and the new earth. New order, new system, new way of life. Everything is going to change. Now, what is, I think, would come immediately to the minds of the hearers of Isaiah's prophecy, as God said that, is, well then, how do we worship? 
If you're taking away the temple and then by implication the sacrificial system and Jerusalem and all that was given within that and you say you're not residing there, heaven is your throne, earth is your footstool, then what are you looking for? What is the worship that you desire? Notice verse 2 says it there in the middle of verse 2, but this is the one whom I will look. Notice that contrast, but this is the one that I will look. The implication is I'm not looking at the one who comes to the temple. I'm not looking at the one who's just worshiping in this physical sense. Here's who I look at. Verse 2 in the middle there. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is what God is looking for in His people. People who are humble. And this is what you see over and over again when Jesus comes and He preaches like in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not preaching something radical and different. This is what the prophet said. I want people who are contrite in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. I want these kinds of people who understand their condition before God. They understand their sins. They understand the weight of what they've done. And then I think really a beautiful picture as he puts on that, not only to come to him in humility, recognizing our spiritual state before God, recognizing our sinfulness before God, having a broken heart over our sinful ways. But then he also says, and people who tremble at my word. People who care about what God says, a high respect and a love For the word of God. He says, this is what my new covenant people will look like. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I desire. And this is something that God has spoken of, as we've seen quite a few times in the book of Isaiah. We saw that like in Isaiah 57 and verse 15. I want people who are in contrite in heart and who come to me with humility. This is what he looks for in this new worship. These are the ones who will belong to me. There's not going to be this external of people who think they are right with God just because They go to a particular place or do particular things. God zeroes in on the desire. People who desire His Word, who tremble at His Word, who are moved by His Word, who desire to do the things that God says. They want to submit to His authority and they sense their inability in spiritual matters and that's why they are broken and contrite before God. Really, what a disaster it would be. If we are people who do not hear and do not tremble at the word of God, who do not care to listen to these things, it's just this is what God wants from his people. God wants people who desire to hear the word, who want to hear what is being told to them. This is important, really, especially when you think of what was going on in the days of Isaiah. It was a while ago we looked at this, but remember... The people in Isaiah's day were saying, we don't want to hear what you have to say. (laughs) When Isaiah was preaching his own message, people said, we don't want to study Isaiah. (laughs) And they're saying, we don't want to hear line by line, precept on precept, just blah, blah, blah. All you do is give the laws, Isaiah 28. And God comes in there and goes, that's not what my people will be. And he comes back to this here and says, my people want to hear what I have to say. They want to listen. They will desire it. They tremble at my word. And I hope that we would have a sense of why this phrase and this sentence is so important. Because it reminds us is that being the people of God and finding favor with God 
Receiving the grace of God is not about perfect law keeping, but trembling before his word. We're not going to hit it on the nose every time. It's not about perfection, but it's about caring about his laws and desiring it and wanting to do it. And when we learn his will, we try to go and do exactly what he says. I think that's what's so great. He doesn't say this is the one who I look at who never sins. (laughs) <laughs> no, he, he never does anything wrong. He's going to come to the Lord and then he will live the perfect life. No, people who admit their sins, contrite in heart, tremble at his word. That's the heart that God looks for. He contrasts that now in verses three through six, as he's going to describe now the problem with these people and really is a picture of the the heart of false worshipers. Verse two describes what God wants, but here's the people that he does not want. Verse three, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and I will bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you shall cast you out for my name's sake. Have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Great picture here. So here he describes the problem. And basically, I believe the heart of the matter can be boiled down to what you read there at the end of verse three. These have chosen their own ways. That's not the heart of God's people. God's people tremble at his word. And he says, here's my Israel. But the problem is they want to do what they want to do. They do not delight in my ways and they do not choose in the things that I delight. We've seen that happen a number of times in Isaiah. I'll say it one more time as our last time here. This is a great definition of what sin looks like. Doing what is evil in God's sight and not choosing what he delights in. Choose what God delights in, not what we delight in. Choose what God delights in. That is the best way for us to understand what is right, what is wrong, what is sin, and what is not. And so he calls for them and says, like in verse 4, When I spoke, you didn't listen. When I called, no one answered. They did what was evil in my eyes. Remember what Isaiah said back in Isaiah 55. Love that chapter. Isaiah 55, here's this great invitation for people to come to him. But there was a condition upon which he says, if you're going to come to me and drink of this water and have this great food and you'll have this bread that is without price, but it will truly satisfy. If you're going to receive all that God has to offer, he said, let him forsake his ways and let him forsake his thoughts. 
And that's what's being depicted right here. They're doing what's evil in his eyes. To come to God, to be a true worshiper of Him, to follow Him means we must forsake our thoughts, forsake our ways. We must consider God's Word to be supreme over our desires, over our beliefs, over our comforts, over our think-sos, over whatever we think it is. God's Word stands greater than that. And so often, as you see here in the days of Isaiah, it's like the people don't ever change. We make our God to be what I want to do. This is my belief, my desire, my value, the way I think things ought to be. And I will make God conform to my desires. God says that's not going to work. We must delight in what He delights in. It must be our joy that we find in Him. But these are do not listen to God, and therefore God will judge them. Look at verse 5, though. Notice there's a change of audience. And here's some words of encouragement. Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord who? You tremble at His word. So He turns to His worshipers. Now He said, okay, they don't have the heart that's right for God. They do not choose what I delight in. They do what is evil. And He turns to His and He says, now, now you who are calling in heart and are trembling at my word listen to what's going to happen verse 5 your brothers who hate you just stop right there they're going to hate you for trembling at my word they're going to hate you because you love the word of God above all else and often we have a picture that our difficulties and our suffering and our challenges and our resistance will only be from outsiders, but that's not true. Will not simply be outsiders. It can be people right in this very room. People who believe that they are followers of God, but they do not tremble at His word, and so they turn and hate those that do. They look with disdain. Notice as it says there, as he continues, I'll read it again. Verse 5, your, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake. They think they're worshiping God. And they give you a hard time for worshiping God the way you do. They give you a hard time because you love God. You put Him first. You make Him supreme. You're reading your, your word. You're trembling before it. You're in love with what God has to say. He says, you're going to get resistance. And it's going to be from people who claim to be followers of God. Don't be surprised at it. Do not be surprised at that kind of resistance and that kind of difficulty. Notice what they're saying in verse 5. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your glory. (laughs) They're going to mock you for your love of God. Oh yeah, we care about God. Let's let let the glory of God be seen. Yeah, we we think he's great, but, but we don't like how you do it. We want to serve and love and worship God our way. And we'll find resistance then. As it says there, they shall be put to shame. God will deal with them. The end of verse 6, rendering recompense to his enemies. Remember that message again and again in Isaiah as well. It's a great comfort for whatever comes to you. Your enemies are God's enemies. That's pictured right here. Your enemies are God's enemies. God will bring recompense on the brothers who hate you, he says. He will deal with them. 
He will take care of them. And so the Lord will do these things. So a great picture then of God judges for sins. God is with His people. And that His people will be mocked for their love of God. They will be mocked for wanting to care about line upon line and precept upon precept and doing exactly as God says and having a love for His Word that trembles before it and submits one's will and submits one's life completely to the Word of God. Now, from verse 7 to verse 17, we're going to notice in this section really a picture of God saying, and I'm going to do it. I have the desire to do it, and I have the ability to accomplish these things. These things are going to happen. These changes and my judgment upon your enemies, these things will certainly happen. Listen to verse 4. This is a strange image. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Now, ladies, can you imagine that one? (laughs) Before you were in labor, there was the kid. (laughs) Whoa, (laughs) okay. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. And listen to God, verse 8. Who has heard such a thing? And who has seen such things? Immediately we're coming out with whatever God is talking about, we are talking about human impossibility. God is about to do something that others cannot do. He says, I'm going to accomplish something that you would never believe, that you would never have seen. And he's describing here a picture now of a nation that is going to be brought about in an instant. Notice verse 8. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children shall I bring to the point of birth and not caused not cause to bring forth says the Lord shall I who caused to bring forth shut the womb says your God but rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her all you who love her rejoice with her in joy all you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance for thus says the Lord Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nation shall shall be like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced on her knee, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his fear, anger and fury and his rebuke in flames of fire. For by fire, the Lord will enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those by the Lord shall be slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end altogether to the Lord. God says, I'm going to do something now. And it's not something that you could accomplish. It's not something that we could achieve. We could not be His people by our power, by our strength. We are weak. We are helpless. We are frail. And God says, I'm going to do something pretty radical here. I'm going to create a nation in an instant. I'm going to create my Zion in a moment. And I will fulfill my promises. Now imagine what that sounds like because he's told them you're going to Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple is no more. And you're not going to worship God that way anyway. 
And he says, but here's what I'm going to do. The promises of God are not broken. Those given to Abraham and to David are still intact. And in a single moment, a nation shall arise. In an instant, I'm going to have my people. Can you think about how the book of Acts sets that up? You come into the book of Acts. And the twelve apostles stand and they preach on that day in Jerusalem. And in an instant, we have the kingdom of God. In an instant, 3,000 souls, boom, the nation arises. You turn a couple pages later, thousands more are baptized and come to the Lord. Until we get to the point that it just says, multitudes upon multitudes are coming in. Here is God saying, I'm going to do something you wouldn't believe. I'm going to raise up a nation. It's not going to take years and it wouldn't be something that a human could do to try to bring a nation about in an instant to raise up a kingdom in a heartbeat. Jesus raises from the dead and boom, here it is. In Acts we see the arrival of the glorious kingdom of God as thousands now enter it. And they then now receive the blessings of God, which is what verses 10 through 14 describe. Beautiful imagery there. I really don't have time to go into as much as I want to. But you see this picture of God loving his people like, like, this, like, like we were infants. This imagery here like in verse 11. That he may nurse you and satisfy you on his consoling breast that you may drink deeply. Verse 13. As one whom his mother comforts so I shall comfort you. Verse 12, you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. Here's God saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to care for you. You are going to be mine. You will be like my children. I'm going to draw you in. And I'm going to do it all in a moment, all in an instant. Fits so well. But what we see in John 20 is that in that instant, as Jesus raises from the dead, everything changes. And now God's people can now be the children of God. Now they can enter into this relationship. And God says, you couldn't do that, but I have done something for you. And then verses 15 through 17, God's enemies. He keeps bringing this back in. He loops back in before he goes too far in the blessings that come to his people. He says, don't forget part of the blessings. Your enemies are God's enemies. And notice that imagery there. I think it's useful to keep in mind. When it says there in verse 15, the Lord will come in fire. The end of verse 15, he will rebuke with flames of fire. Please always keep that in your mind and learning something about reading symbolism in the scriptures. Is when God says there's fire coming, that's not a joyful, pleasant thing. That is judgment. As judgment imagery, and that's what drives me crazy. You get over to Matthew and it talks about that there's going to be a baptism of, of uh, the Holy Spirit, a baptism of fire. And you'll read some people go, the baptism of fire is a really good thing, like there in Acts 2. That is not the baptism of fire. Baptism of fire is always a bad thing. Let me ask you, does it sound like being baptized in fire a good thing? Does that sound enjoyable? No, not at all. God's coming in fury. It is flames of fire. It is wrath. It is judgment. Isaiah, you uses that here and says, I will bring my wrath against the enemies. And this is exactly what John the baptizer is standing up and saying. That time has come. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. Brood of vipers who warned you of the wrath to come. And then what Isaiah said has now arrived. Christ is coming and the wrath is coming with it. And you see Isaiah tying those two things together. Salvation is coming, but salvation always comes with judgment. Salvation always comes with judgment. And so these pictures give us that as well. As God declares at the end of verse 17, a total end to the enemies. God will destroy them. God will judge them. Which brings us to the final section. Amazing, amazing imagery now. 
Listen to what God says, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring in your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Here God says, my glory is going to go out to the nations. People who have not heard of my fame, people who have not heard of my glory, they are going to see, they are going to hear, and they are going to come in, which we have seen in so many of our studies, like in the book of Ephesians. This is ultimately what everything of creation is about. It's about all people understanding and coming to a knowledge of the glory of God. It's all about that. And Isaiah ends thunderously on that. The glory of God will go out to the nations and the nations, the Gentiles, they're going to come in. And think about how that continues the story of the book of Acts. Is that's exactly what happens as we move into Acts chapter 10. We see Cornelius as he now comes into the family of God. And we read about people like Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy as they go out to the nations. And the nations are coming in and gathering themselves in to this glorious kingdom. So it's a beautiful picture of what God is going to do. But notice something just I think it would have had to have been so perplexing to hear in that day and time. As verses 19 and 20 are describing, the nations are coming in and Israel is coming. I shall bring your brothers from all the nations. So we have this universal, everybody has access, everybody can come in, Jews, Gentiles, everybody's coming into this kingdom. Read verse 21. And some of them I will take for as priests and as Levites. What? You can't do that. That's what we're doing Chronicles, right? Why are we spending so much time on the Chronicles and the, the Levitical priesthood, right? You have to be a Levite to be able to do anything in the temple service before God. And even at that, to be a priest, you had to be a son of Kohath. You had to have special designation. You, weren't, you couldn't just be son of Aaron. You had to be a special descendant to be able to do these things. To be a priest or to be a Levite required special credentials. And God just said, you know what? When everybody starts coming in, when all the nations come in, I'm going to have priests and Levites from any of them. Totally eliminating the distinction between Israelites and non-Israelites. Anybody will now be able to be a priest of God. How great that is. You read that in the scriptures. As we now, like Peter would say, are this holy nation, a royal priesthood 
beautiful imagery of our standing before God as we now function before the world and before God as priests. And I think it just had to be so staggering because not even all of Israel could be priests. And now he says, not only could Israelites be priests, Gentiles can be priests too. Everybody would have this equal access. Everybody could come to the Lord and enjoy these privileges of being a child of God, a priest of God, a servant of God. What a joy that would have had to be. Now, I think the ultimate question that would have come from that is how? (laughs) Right? Here you are in the days of the old. How is that possible? You just said that everybody's going to come in. The nations are going to come in. The Gentiles are coming. And I'm going to choose from them priests. They're all going to be my priests and my Levites before me. I will choose them and they'll be mine. How will they do that? Look at verse 22. Notice the explanation. For new heavens and new earth. There's that image again. How could it be? That he could take Gentiles and Israelites and say, all right, they can all now have no distinction and now be joined as priests before God because it's a new heavens and a new earth. All that we said in the last chapter is critical right here. It's a new creation. Everything has changed. New order, new system new way of life when Christ comes. And that's what Isaiah is hearing. Remember, Isaiah is saying, Lord, you've got to do something radical to break the hearts of these people who are darkened by their sins, and though they're separated from God, they're not turning to you. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something you wouldn't believe. I'm going to send Christ. And he's going to establish his nation in an instant, in a moment. And all the peoples who join themselves to him... Equal access. Priests, Levites before God. Servants before God. Ministers of God. A radical transformation. A complete change when Christ comes. And so here is this imagery of the new heavens and the new earth. And so I would show you here. Obviously we can't be talking about eternity, can we? If this is saying, hey, in eternity all new heavens and new earth. Well then Gentiles aren't included right now. This is picturing Gentile inclusion into the kingdom of God. New heavens and new earth was that imagery of this new covenant time and how we would all have equal access before him. In fact, notice verse 23. All flesh shall come to worship before me. We have to appreciate that. We really do have to have that Israelite sense of you didn't get anywhere near the presence of God under the old covenant. You just didn't draw near. You stayed back. Priests had the access. You brought your animal to them. Lamb was slaughtered. They would do all the things on the inside. You didn't get to see any of it that was going on. And here is this picture now. All flesh are going to come to worship me. There is equal access to the Lord. All people can enjoy the presence of God that no one would be excluded. No one could be left out. And how about verse 23 as well? From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, they're all going to worship me. People who do not want to stop worshiping. That's a glorious picture. This is what God's people look like. They desire worship. 
They desire to read his word. They desire to relish what God has to say. And I would submit to you, this is perhaps a great picture. Sometimes I'll get asked, well, how, how am I supposed to know if I'm saved? How do I know if I belong to God or not? How, you know, I've, I commit sins and do all these things, so I don't feel very secure. Here's a very good picture. For here God says, here's who my people are. They want to serve me. They want to worship me. They want to pray. They want to read. They want to gather. They desire the ways of God. They tremble at his word. That's the picture. It's not about, well, I've done more good things than bad things. My sins are greater. That's not the calculation. The calculation is, do you love God? Do you want to worship him day and night? You know, isn't that great what you see in the book of Revelation? What are they doing? Day and night, forever and ever, worshiping God. The 24 elders are staggering to me. They're casting their crowns and the worship is going on day and night. Everybody's enjoying worshiping God. Verse 23, what a picture. From new moon to new moon, there's no stopping this. They want to worship. They want to enjoy it. They desire it. They love it. And it's one reason I'm so encouraged to be here amongst the Christians here, because I know you do too, and that you enjoy the Word of God so much. And to be able to like go through the book of Isaiah like this and just want to learn, what does Isaiah have to say? What does he have to teach us? What are we going to learn from him? That's the heart that God desires. He wants people who desire His Word, who want to hear. What does He have to say? What can we learn from Him? Who want to swallow up themselves in worship and immerse themselves in prayer and study and in gathering and serving and loving God. Such a beautiful picture. But He doesn't end there. One final statement. Verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in an abhorrence to all flesh. With salvation and hope comes judgment again. And he draws it back around and says there's eternal consequences for those who do not tremble at his word who do not desire God, who do not seek His ways, who do not love what He has. What an amazing statement that God gives here. That this, These are the ones who will experience eternity, those who worship Me, who love Me, who serve Me, and these are the ones who experience this eternal punishment. Now, did that phrase there in Isaiah, that final verse, ring a bell to you? What an ending. Because Jesus quoted that one. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And he quotes Isaiah's final words right there. Isaiah is looking at a people and Jesus is looking at a people that would say, I desire to be with God and I tremble at his word so greatly and I desire His way so much that if I took cutting off my hand or my foot or my eye, 
I do it because I want to be with God. And that's what Jesus is picturing. Here's what my people look like. Here's the people who love God, who will get rid of every obstacle, who will lay aside anything that stands in the way of being what God desires them to be. It's a great picture of hope and a great picture of what it means that Jesus has come, who has brought salvation with him, and that we can be his people, that God has changed everything through Jesus, and how there could not be perhaps a better image to describe how different things are under the new covenant than just to say it is a new heavens and a new earth. It is a new creation. Behold, I've made all things new. Everything is different now that we now are enabled to worship God day and night as priests before him with access before him, enjoying his presence because of what God has accomplished through Christ. And we look forward to the day when the final promises of God will be fully renewed and we can be with him eternally. That is our hope and our desire. What an amazing ending to this prophecy. And I hope it encourages you to seek the Lord with all of your heart. And I hope it gives you the strength to press on in your love for God. And that though we may sin and we fall short, that God wants a contrite heart. God wants us in our humility. And God wants people who tremble at His Word, who desire His ways, who listen to Him. This is what He wants of His people. Will you submit to Him tonight? Will you turn away from your sins and receive the mercy and the grace of God today by turning from your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Son of God, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And that we know that we do not have to worry about eternal punishment. For by the grace of God, you saved us from the wrath we deserve. And instead can enter into a relationship of being his children. And God will be your father. Will you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?